Bibles to Matthew 8. We're going to be reading in verses 23 to 27. We are, this is the second message in the series on the parables and miracles of Jesus Christ. We're seeing Jesus beholding the king and his kingdom and seeing what does it look like to follow the king? What does this king look like? And what does his kingdom look like? And so today we're going to get a glimpse of, of who this king is in the kingdom that he comes to declare. And so turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to read verses 23 to 27 together. This is God's holy, inspired word. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would see what sort of man you are. God, I pray that we would look to you in faith today. God, I pray that we would experience your calm and your peace as we behold you, who, you, you who is no mere mortal, you, the God-man. Father, I pray that we would look to you in all things and that our faith would be built up in you. pray that you would bless me as I, as I speak. Would you enable me to say your words? And Lord, I pray as well that you enable all who hear to pay attention to your words, to hear from you, to be inspired by you, encouraged by you, and have their faith built up in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I recently let my two older children watch an, an older movie. I don't know if it was a good call or not. It was called The Truman Show from back in 1998. It was a, a Jim Carrey movie, and um, it, it's kind of a comedy, but it's it's also got some very real message kind of that it's, I think it's driving at it, trying to communicate, and it talks about life. And um, if you haven't seen it, it's a story of a guy named Truman Burbank, and he it was born and then adopted by this TV studio, and he doesn't know it. And so he's raised his entire life on this made-up set, on this made-up island of Sea Haven that's surrounded by this massive dome and, and surrounded by water. And it experiences weather and night and day, and there's no way for him to tell that he's a part of a fake world. Until one day, kind of when he's a little older, he, he goes to the elevator and he goes to the wrong floor and he goes out the back, and it looks like the set of a stage, and he's really confused. And then the next day, he goes and he sits in his car, and he watches the traffic go by, and he sees that, wait a minute, this is like on a loop. Everybody's on a loop, and everybody seems to be focused on me. And then he begins to realize, it begins to dawn on him, and he's, he's living in this world that someone else is controlling, that someone else is over, and he's living in this world that that he doesn't feel like he has control over. 
And so he, he realizes this at, at the tipping point that he's in this fake world controlled by some unseen person and he wants to escape. And so he tries to overcome his fear. He gets on this small boat. He goes out on the water and the guy who's controlling all this, the executive producer, director, his name is Christoph. I think maybe the, the movie uh, writer, the screenwriter had something in mind there. And, but this man is not good and, and he he controls everything, and so he sees that Truman's about to escape, his livelihood's about to escape, his star of all the ratings is about to escape. He makes a real storm kick up on this fictitious lake. And so this real storm kicks up, and it about kills him. And Truman is knocked unconscious, and he's lashed to the boat. And so then you see unconscious, you're wondering, is he really dead or not? And his boat plows into the side of this big kind of dome, and a hole is punched there, and Truman escapes. And I, I remember at the time thinking of, of a powerful story that it was, and, but it was conveying really the wrong message. It was conveying the message that there was a, 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 a malicious director over everything. It was conveying the message that, that someone else was controlling his life for their own entertainment, and if you could just break free, everything would be okay. But that's, that's not the message of the Bible. It's not the message of the Gospels. In fact, it's, it's actually the direct opposite. Yes, there is someone controlling the storm. There is someone over all of our lives. But it's not just for his entertainment. It's actually for our good. We're the ones who have marooned ourselves on an island, if you will, apart, separated from God. And instead of us going and setting us free, he comes. And this story, this account, this true historical account is really also symbolic of, of Jesus coming and getting in the boat with us and, and bringing us through the storm. Physically, he brought them through the storm. It wasn't metaphorical. It was a real storm. This is not an allegory. And he brought them through the storm. But it points forward to the greater reality that, that Jesus is the one who comes and rescues us from the problem of us being in control of our own lives. And he sets us free, but only when we look to him for salvation. And so that's kind of what we see here in this passage. But it really begins, if you will, the, the account begins a few verses earlier than where we started. It begins um, up in Matthew 8.18. We have it on the overheads for you. It says, Now when Jesus saw a great crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. That's, that's where it begins. And then Matthew is setting the stage. Like any good account, he, he gives you context, he gives you the setting. And so in this setting, Jesus is saying, okay, he's been actively doing ministry left and right, and he's been um, with the crowds and healing people all over the place, and Jesus is exhausted, and so he says, let's go to the other side. But in the middle of this, there's an interruption here, and if, if you are a student of Scripture, you'll know that there's no mistakes in the way the Scripture is written. Well, he's interrupted right after they're planning to go to the other side. And in verse 19, the scribe comes up to Jesus and he says, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him, he says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then another of the disciples came up to him and said, Lord. And the implication is, I'll follow you. But then he says, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said something shocking in that culture. He said that I supersede even the most important relationships of family. And he says, he says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. 
What is Matthew doing here for us? What is, what is Matthew doing in this miracle? He's setting the stage for what does it look like to be a true follower of Jesus Christ? What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? He's driving home this point that discipleship is not easy. There's a cost. It requires something. It's difficult. It's hard. It might mean that you have to sever family relationships. It looks like putting Jesus before family. It looks like potentially or being willing to have nowhere to lay your head for the sake of following him. And it's in that context that's the reason why Matthew's interrupting that. He chooses the material in order very carefully He writes history, but for theological intent. And so what he's showing, he's showing here that there is a cost and that you, in following Jesus, your disciple, his disciples, it might mean going right into a storm. Now for them it was physical storm, physically a storm. It was a natural storm. So what he's saying to them, what the lesson they would have realized later on in life is following Jesus might mean going right into the storm. That's not a pretty message. That's not an easy believism. That's not an easy discipleship message, is it? Following Jesus might mean going directly into the place you want to avoid the most, but you might not know. The disciples had no idea they were going into a storm. But Jesus did. We can see something too that the way Matthew words it, the account is found both in Mark and Luke as well. But the way that Matthew words it, he sets it up and he says, Jesus went into the boat and the disciples followed him. And that, that verb follow, it's, it's repeated several times throughout the chapter. And that's the theme that he's going for is that Jesus is the one in charge and his disciples are the ones following him. So what does it look like to follow him? And following him might mean going into the storm. And so the 12 disciples, they follow him into the boat. In case you're wondering, it was probably a rather small boat by today's standards. And a picture of of the boat that was probably something very much like it, they discovered back in 1986... They discovered a boat that had, was from about 40 A.D. They, they recovered it. This isn't the actual one, but it's a model based on it. And it's, it's only about 27 feet long, almost 8 feet wide, not quite, about 4 and a quarter feet tall. And they would put 15 men on this little boat with five crewmen. So they had 20 people on this 27-foot long boat. And there was a little mast in the middle where a square sail would be. And they had four oars for rowing. And, and they would get on this boat and go across the Sea of Galilee. And it's, it's likely that that is the kind of boat that they were getting into. But they had no idea what they were getting into. They had no idea. They thought they were just going over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It was just really they're cutting off the top part of the Sea of Galilee just a few miles But it shows us really that being a disciple, following Jesus, isn't safe. And look in verse 24, what it says. It says, and behold, there arose a great storm. The 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 literal word is mega. There arose a mega storm. It's actually the word for storm there is earthquake. It was a quaking of the very waters, a mega quaking of the waters. A great storm arose on the sea. It says, so the boat was being swamped. Can you imagine that little boat? Flip back to that for a moment. That little boat with maybe 20 people on that or 15 to 20, somewhere in that. This little boat 
an omega storm. And it's said by some that the waves in the Sea of Galilee, they could be anywhere between four and seven feet when these mega storms kicked up. And so this little boat, four feet tall, is being swamped. The waves are going over this boat. They're crashing into the boat. In Mark and Luke, we get the idea that it's actually beginning to sink and swamped. It's full of water. Even though the Sea of Galilee is just a small lake, and I think we have a picture of the Sea of Galilee, you can see um, it's, it's surrounded by some very high rifts, really, from a, a rift of the Jordan Valley. And one of the unique things there is the hot air will come from one direction, the cold air can come to another, and they'll collide, and without warning, you have these sudden, tumultuous storms kick up. And I think we have another picture for you. Um, I believe, this little, little, only a few miles across. It was about seven miles across. It's the widest part. So they think it was about four or five miles they were going. It doesn't seem like a very big deal. The disciples were probably confident in their own abilities. Many of them were fishermen after all. They had been on these waters their whole lives. They probably confidently said, we got this, Jesus. We're okay. We're good. We're all good. Everything's all right. We know, we know what we're doing. And then... That day, a great storm arises, and I think we have a picture of some of the waves on the Sea of Galilee, and, and, and those are like four and five foot waves, and so I can imagine a great storm kicking up in a small boat. Um, I, I hate being out on a wave rider when I have small waves, much less four and five footers. I couldn't imagine, and yet, after setting out at some point prior to the storm, Jesus goes to sleep. He goes to sleep on this little boat. He, you know, he was likely very tired and exhausted from all of the relentless, really, ministry that he was carrying out. And so Jesus laid down, it says in, in Mark, on the, on, the, on the cushion, most likely the captain's cushion on the stern of the boat, and he sleeps. Now, it's not surprising that he slept, but what's surprising is that he stayed asleep. If you are in that little boat and it's being swamped by the waves and kicked all around, I think you would probably wake up puking. Not just wake up, but wake up violently ill. But we see that Jesus is asleep. The waves were crashing. The boat was starting to sink. And, and Jesus, in the midst of the storm, he was asleep. He was resting easy. And, and I think that really just shows something about Jesus and who he is. It's meant for us to see that he was confident in his power. He was confident that he was reigning and ruling supreme. And so Jesus as God, reigning over all things, orchestrating all things, holding every molecule in place, sure, but he as man, he was trusting in his Father completely, knowing that he has power to save. And that's what we'll see is that Jesus has power to save. It's the second concept that the disciples experienced was that Jesus has power to save. You know, how in the world could he sleep in the midst of this mega storm? It's remarkable. Jesus' ability to sleep, I was just thinking, you know, maybe it was a bit of his sheer exhaustion. You ever been so tired and stayed up so long and worked so hard that you just fall dead asleep and nothing wakes you up. Anybody ever, ever like that? I'm, I'm not that way. I, I seem to wake up at the drop of a hat. But my kids at times can sleep through anything. When, when actually when um, Gideon, we brought him home from the hospital, I took a, a week off 
or maybe two weeks off, I can't remember exactly. But the, the two days after we got back, I thought, well, he's sleeping, I've got time. And so I put in hardwood floors with a big compressor downstairs and hammer and pa-pow, pa-pow, making all this noise. He didn't wake up at all. He was able to sleep. He was unconcerned by what was around him. He was untroubled. He didn't know better. He didn't know to be frightened and by noises. And, and Jesus has that unshakable sleep here. But then we see something. We see the disciples are unable to save themselves. You know, maybe they set out on that journey, on that boat, a very familiar boat. Maybe it was, it was one of their boats. Maybe it was Peter or Andrew's boat or James and John, the sons of thunder. You know, maybe, maybe it was one of their boats and they were all fishermen. And so maybe it was one of their boats and they were familiar. So they set out confidently and self-sufficiently. You ever set out that way thinking everything's going to be fine? I got this, man. I'm, I'm okay. I'm good. And so they set out, and yet these experienced fishermen, these seasoned, rough, tough guys, and I can imagine Peter, he, he was not, not the first one to admit that he needed his help, but yet you see they get to the place where this becomes this reversal of roles. And something happens where they get to the place where they realize they can do nothing else. They've tried everything They've worked the oars, they've put up the sail, they've taken it down, they've done whatever, they've dragged the anchor, and these fishermen are realizing that they are about to die. And, and they, something dawns on them, that maybe should have dawned on them beforehand, is that maybe we should consider this Jesus we got with us. Maybe we should consider this guy who's just been doing miracles He's a teacher, and he seems to have power. Maybe we should consider him. He, he seems, they've been with him for a year after all. Maybe, oh gosh, maybe we should have looked to him. And so they go to him, and they wake him up. And I was just thinking about how, for myself, when I encounter difficult things, physical things, physical challenges in life, so often I'll rest and rely on my own abilities like the disciples maybe did. And I'll forget that, you know, if I think I'm physically capable of doing something, you know, for me, I'm, I'm notorious, in, in, at least in my household, of um, I'll have uh, a repair project or maybe a car repair or something like that. And, and, and I'll think, I got this. I'm good. I know how to do this. I've done it a hundred times before. I can, I can, whatever, change spark plugs, right? But try to do that on an older minivan. And then you realize there's issues. And then you get frustrated and angry when things don't go your way. And I realize oh gosh, I probably should have prayed to begin with instead of praying now that I'm really feeling at my wit's end and like everything's going to fall apart because the physical world just seems to be against me. Well, I think it's meant to be a reminder to us to, to look to Christ. It's I love, I've been reading lately and I commend her books to you of an older woman in the faith named Corey Tinboom, who was rescued out of um, a concentration camp and, and, and she she once said, you can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. The disciples actively experienced that. They learned, he's what we need right now because he's all the hope we have. He's the only hope we have. And the question for us, really for you and me, is do you know that he's all that you need? Are, are, are you experiencing that? Have you Learn that Christ is all you need because he is all you have, really. 
When disciples realized that Jesus was their only hope, if he didn't do something, they'd be saved, they would be lost. And so Matthew records disciples, they wake up and they say to him, look in verse 25, it says, and they went and woke him. And then Matthew uses very succinct language. It's only found in Matthew, not in Mark or, or Luke. And he says, save us, Lord. We are perishing. And, and, and Matthew, I think, uses that salvation language because not only do they physically want to be saved from the storm, and they're they're physically going to die. The ultimate fulfillment in Christ is not just salvation from a, a physical death. It's ultimately salvation from death. And he's able, he has power to save. And so it almost reads like a prayer when it says, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. In Mark, he put it a little differently. Mark was a little more blunt. Um, and Mark, um, by the way, probably heard direct accounts from Peter, and he's probably writing at the request of Peter his gospel. And so Mark puts it a little more Peter-like, and he says, Teacher, don't you care that we're sinking? That sounds like Peter, doesn't it? I can only imagine Peter saying that. And he says, Teacher, don't you care that we're sinking? And the implication was, you don't care, you're sleeping, you don't care that we're sinking. But I think Matthew's showing that what Jesus was responding to was their call to him to save them. They knew they needed saving from death, and, and so they sought Jesus to save them. But I know about, about you, but I know about me, um, sometimes I feel like, God, don't you care? Don't you see this hard situation that I'm in? Don't you see this difficulty? Well, the good news is, is they came to Jesus who had power to save them. Matthew writes, and Jesus spoke to them something strange here. Jesus speaks to them before he calms the storm. So they go to Jesus, they wake him up. I can imagine he's on the pillow and he kind of opens his eyes and he goes, why are you afraid? Oh, you have little faith. And they're like, what? And, you know, so instead of getting up and doing something about it first, he takes the time to correct them. He takes the time to rebuke them. He takes the time to correct their lack of faith in him. Why is that? Well, I think it shows us something about who Jesus is. It shows that he's, he's eminently confident in his ability to calm a storm. He's in no rush. He knows he's going to calm a storm. He knows he can do that. He's, he's not worried about the waves. It's, it's not like they took him by surprise. He kind of wakes up. And he's like, yeah, I know. I'm, yeah, I'm sleeping through it. I'm wet like you. But he says... Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. And I can imagine, at least Peter maybe, or if I was on that boat, I would have been like, really? Seriously? Are you really asking, why are you afraid? Do you not, hello, do you not see the waves? Do you not see they're like higher than our boat? They're crashing in. We're fishermen. We're we're about to drown. It's about 160 feet deep here, by the way. You can only tread water for so long, no matter how good a swimmer you are. Um... Why are you afraid? Really? Maybe there's times when others might ask that same kind of question. God, why are you asking why am I afraid? Really? There's reason why I should be afraid. You know, maybe, maybe Andrew was saying, you know, man, is Jesus just clueless? The boat's taking on water and he wonders why we're afraid? But then I can imagine some of the disciples must have, for a moment, been shocked by his, his calm candor, his 
he just wakes up and he says, why are you afraid of you little faith? And there must have been something settling and, and marveling about his fearlessness and his composure. But then he, he in, doesn't just indict them as so you have little faith. He gets up and he does something. But you have to stop for a minute and say, well, why is Jesus correcting them? Why is he doing that? Is he just being mean? Is he rubbing it in? Is he insulting them? Is he just, why is he even correcting them at all? Can't he just be like nice to them and just calm the storm without correcting them? And the answer is no. It was very important that they saw that they needed to have faith in him. That they should have faith in him. He needed to correct their wrong perception of him. Their lack of faith is because they didn't see who he was, truly. So he corrects them. They didn't see the love of the Father. He had been teaching them already all about who the Father was in the previous passages in Matthew. If you flip back in your Bible, he's been telling them all about it. He says, you know, if your Father in heaven cares for you so much that he, he, you know, he cares for you so much more. He, he clothes the flowers of the field with beauty, and they're just here for a day, they're gone tomorrow. How much more will he clothe you, oh, you of little faith? Same language here. And he says, if he provides for you, why do you worry about your body? He says, the Father cares for birds, and he, he provides for them. Won't he provide for you so much more? Isn't he able to provide for your physical body, your physical needs? So that's why now they've, He's correcting them. They've not gotten the message that not only does God care for them, but he has power to save them. And so Jesus corrects them because they need to see that if Jesus is with us, there's no reason to be afraid. That's the third thing that we need to see. If Jesus is with us, we have no reason to be afraid. The disciples needed to see if Jesus was with them, they had no reason to be afraid. Back In Matthew 6, he taught them, don't be anxious. Don't you know your heavenly Father cares for you? Don't you know that I'm able to do all things? He's already turned water into wine. He's already had lepers come up and and healed them in an instant. He talked to a centurion, and he says, you know what? Um, Go, and your servants are already healed. And then people came to him and And he healed them from all manner of problems. Peter's own mother, he'd already healed from this deadly fever. He's casting out demons and he's done all these things. And he rebukes them for being afraid. And the reason he's rebuking them is it's not because they asked him to save them. He doesn't say, Why are you asking me to save you? He doesn't rebuke him for that. He rebukes them for being fearful, for being afraid, for forgetting who he is, for not seeing that he has power to save. So certainly they would come to him. Certainly he expected to say, Lord, save us. We're perishing. But not out of fear, out of faith and saying, God, you know, we... We know you can save us. Lord, do what you alone can do. There's a very different perspective. And he is saying to them, I am God. And if God is with you, why in the world would you be afraid? Think about that for a moment. Think about what Jesus told his disciples elsewhere. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. 
That applies to us as well. If, if God is God and he is with you, why in the world would we be afraid? What can man do to us now? What circumstances can overcome us? Let this sink in for a moment. Are you afraid of what might happen to your physical body? Are you afraid of calamity? Are you afraid of a truck striking and killing your family? If God is with you, why would you be afraid? He's not saying that there's not reason to be afraid. He's saying you're forgetting that I'm with you. So because of that, no matter what happens, even in this physical calamity, you have no reason to be afraid. God, the creator of all, he's able to sustain, he's able to keep. Whether you live or die, you're in his care. That's what he's saying here. No matter what happens. He's physically with them. And they would have been able to understand what that meant, that God was physically with them. They should have known. For us, it means that God is with us each and every day. He's with each and every person here who's been born again by his Holy Spirit. Do you realize that? Do you get that? Do you realize that he is with you, that Jesus, the creator of all, is with you? I want to ask you, what physical challenges, what this is about the natural world, Jesus being Lord over nature, have you encountered things that cause you to doubt that he is truly God? You know, when you see the tsunami hit, or you see earthquakes, or see natural disasters, or floods in West Virginia a few weeks ago, or hurricanes hit, do you remember that, that God is not distant? He's with you. He's present with each of us, residing permanently. So then the question we have to ask is, if God is with us, if we really believe that, why in the world are we afraid? Are we really looking to Jesus? Or are we looking to ourselves? Ask yourself, am I, am I really looking to Jesus when I'm confronted with challenge, with, with, with circumstances and difficulties? Or am I, am I looking to myself? If I, if I keep my eyes on Jesus, remember that he is with us, There's no reason to be afraid. He didn't say, hey guys, what storm? What waves? Hey, there's no waves here. There's no storm here. Nothing to see. (laughs) He wasn't stupid. He wasn't phased by the storm. And he's saying, look, I see the waves. I see the storm. Don't you see me? (laughs) You don't think I'm bigger than the storm and the waves? I'm the creator. You don't think I can calm a, a little storm Comparatively on the Sea of Galilee. You know, practical faith is trusting in God to care for us no matter what and not worrying about it because he's our father. Another, give you another quote by Corey Tinboom. She put it well when, when she said, he, it's not my ability but my response to God's ability that counts. It's not my ability but my response to God's ability that counts. How do you respond to God's ability? First of all, are you aware of God's ability? And then how do you respond to his ability in your life? They were fearful. They trusted him too little. Well, to prove they had no reason to be afraid, what does Jesus do? He says, you have no reason to be afraid, and then he gets up and proves it. It's kind of like when Jesus forgave the paralytic man, and they're thinking, wait a minute, why are you forgiving this guy? Doesn't he really need to be healed? And he said, well, so that you know that the Son of Man has power to forgive, I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and walk. It was to demonstrate that he has power to save. Jesus is demonstrating here the same thing. He has power to save. They have no reason to be fear. Why? He shows it. He gets up. And he does something that, that must have been really shocking. He says, he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. 
and there was great calm. He gets up like he owned the place. And he confidently rebukes this fierce gale and the raging waves all around. And, and the word for rebuke, it's the same word that we see in Matthew for, for casting out, for rebuking demons and, and evil forces. And so there's this connotation here. There's, there may be more behind these physical disasters that you know, Satan is actually the god of this world, this fallen world. All of creation was subjected to futility as well. And so there may be more going on here. We don't know for sure, but he uses this language and he rebukes nature and he probably says something along the lines from luke and from mark he says something like hush be still or quit it stop it peace be still and then shockingly that it says there was a great calm not not just like then then this wave slowly subsided it was suddenly there was a great calm a calm that was mega a mega calm It superseded all other calms. It was a great calm. It must have been unnerving, unsettling. Imagine these waves crashing everywhere. The the wind and the waves are going everywhere. And all of a sudden, Jesus rebukes waves and dead calm. And then the boat's just kind of sitting there recovering and full of water. And the sun is out. How weird would that be? It was perfectly calm went from crazy scary to crazy calm in an instant. You know, in the Old Testament, you have to know that the, the, the people hearing the story, in the Old Testament, the seas were always a symbol of chaos and destruction in the world. And so Matthew's doing a few things here. He, it's not an allegory, but he's, he's, he's giving application to the hearers. They would have gotten some things. They would have seen, wait a minute, Jesus is able to calm this chaos, this destruction in the natural world. He calms it all with a word. And it was demonstrating that he's sovereign over chaos. He's sovereignly over the destruction of the world. The very created order obeyed the words of Jesus. The Psalm disciples would have been familiar with Psalm 93. They read their Bibles. They were good Jewish followers. And, and in Psalm 93, it talks about God. And only God is ascribed like this. And something would have clicked when they saw Jesus calming the storms. And let's read Psalm 93. It says, the Lord reigns. He's robed in majesty. The Lord, he wears strength around his waist. Indeed, the world is established. It can't be moved. Your throne has been secure from ancient times. You've always been king. The waves roar. O Lord, the waves roar. The waves roar and crash. Above the sound of surging water and the mighty waves of the sea, the Lord sits enthroned in majesty. And I can only imagine disciples remembering this passage in Psalms and thinking, wait a minute. The waves roar. The sea crashes, but God is the one who sits enthroned. Oh my goodness, this must be God. Here in this miracle, it's a picture of God himself above the sounds of the waves and the waters. He didn't wave his arms around and do something weird. It didn't sl- slowly diminish. He, he brought great calm immediately. And he proved that he has dominion over the earth and the sea. Hebrews tells us he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And, and, and it says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We see that Jesus is able to save with his powerful word. He's able to rescue from death. He holds an authority equal to the creator because he is the creator. That's what we're seeing here. 
And his rebuke of them earlier wasn't to make them feel bad. It was to reveal their lack of faith so that he would build their faith in him, the right source of faith. He showed that he could take care of their fears no matter what might happen in the life. They could always look back, and I can imagine it's stuck with them. They could always look back and say, if Jesus was able to subdue all of the natural world in any circumstance, situation, any calamity we might face, he, he's the creator. Don't we see he's powerful? The question for us, though, is do you see Jesus for who he is? Do you trust in him as the creator of all? Do you know that he's the one who flung the universe into existence by the power of his word? Do you know that he caused the planets to spin in their orbit? When he spoke, light exploded into being. Do you know that through his words, he upholds and sustains all things? So how in the world can he not uphold and sustain your life? Oh, you of little faith. That's what we're meant to see here. But the question is, do you know that? Do you know that he cares for you? Do you know he's able to? Do you know that he cares practically for you too every day? They experienced a physical storm. Their lives were in real danger, but he rebuked them because they didn't have faith in the midst of the storm. They didn't remember that he was with them, that he had power to save The storm they experienced was a very real physical storm, and it, and it revealed these overall creations, so we don't need to fear. But there's always something else going on. It's a type and a symbol. John actually calls it signs. Miracles were signs. They were pointing forward to who Jesus was, his true nature, his true character. And this was a sign that's saying, Jesus is the one who doesn't just save us physically and able to rescue us. He is the one who ultimately is able to save to the uttermost. It was a sign, really, as well of his... Mercy, his patience with his disciples. They still didn't get it. But he didn't just say, so you're stuck. Hey, you don't have faith in me, so you know what? You're going down. I'm walking on water. I'm, I'll see you on the other side in a few years, you know. He didn't say that to them. He had mercy. He was patient with their lack of faith. He says, you don't have faith. You should have faith. But you know what? I'm going to rescue you in the midst of your lack of faith. That is hope giving to me. You know, I lack faith. You ever lack faith in life? You ever just at the place where you just have little faith? Jesus, in the midst of the storm, comes to people with little faith, and he has patience and mercy on them. This is a demonstration of his patience, a demonstration of his mercy in the midst of our failures, in the midst of our fears, in the midst of our weakness, in little faith. He knows what we need. He's able to calm any obstacle in all of nature. Not only is he aware of our struggles, he has mercy on his disciples when, when we need him the most. The men couldn't save themselves. We can't save ourselves physically or spiritually. But Jesus could and did. When, and, and they simply said, Lord, save us, we're perishing. He doesn't require us to perform for him. He doesn't need our efforts, and in fact, our efforts can't add anything. Their efforts did nothing but just take them deeper in the storm. And it's a great picture there, the fact that Jesus doesn't come to people who have it all together, who've, who've made their way out, who've earned their way out of the storm. He says he comes to people who have no other way out, and he rescues and he saves and what they learn is this truth that we need to grasp hold of personally. It's that Jesus is no ordinary man. 
He's no ordinary man. So we can trust him. Do you know that? Or do you treat Jesus like some ordinary man, like a man like you? He was and is man, but he's also fully God. He's no ordinary man. Matthew, he calls the disciples men here. It's interesting, he says, and the men marveled and said, what sort of man? And why, why is he doing it? Why is he saying the men? He called them disciples for, because he's, he's making a distinction here. They have begun to see that they are men and he is no mere man. But these men, his disciples, mere men, they marveled. That word there, it, it means just what you think. They were shocked. They were astounded. They were awestruck. They marveled. They were shaking in their boots. I, I like the way that Mark and Luke put it. They were afraid. They were terrified. They were fearful. They were afraid of the storm and dying, but once they realized who Jesus is, the creator of all was in the boat with them. They were in God's very presence, the one whose presence can bear no sin, the one who no one sees face to face and lives. All of a sudden, something dawns on them and they realize, this is God with us. And it says, then they were afraid. They marveled. And they, they kind of take a step back, and I can imagine they go to the back end of the boat, or maybe the front end, because he was at the back, and, and they back away, and they say, what sort of man is this that, that creation obeys him? Jesus is no ordinary man. We can trust him. Do you remember the story of Jonah in the Old Testament? It's, it's not the cutesy flannel graph story. I don't mean that, but I mean the real story of Jonah in the, in the Old Testament. Jonah, he, he was a prophet of God. He disobeyed God's word. He did not carry God's word to people who didn't deserve it. He, he said, you know what? No, I don't want to go to Nineveh because those people don't deserve to hear your word and be saved. And you said, if I take the word there, you're going to save them. I don't want to do that. I want to take salvation to them. So Jonah disobeys God. He runs from God. And running from God, God causes a storm to kick up to, to get Jonah's attention, to correct Jonah. And so Jonah though he's been running from God, and this massive storm comes up on the sea. And, and the, it's interesting, this account in Matthew, it almost seems very similar to the one in Jonah, doesn't it? The storm kicks up on the sea. Now, that was the Mediterranean Sea, a little bit bigger, but the storm kicks up and is still no less perilous. And then it says that, you know, the sailors are throwing the cargo overboard, and it doesn't help. And then Jonah, meanwhile, is asleep in the hold of the boat. It's a parallel here. You know, Scripture's showing that Jesus is the true prophet who was faithful where Jonah was not faithful. Jonah 1.6, the captain of the boat, he comes to Jonah, he says, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up! He says, call on your God. Maybe your God will be concerned about us and we won't perish. We've been trying that ourselves and it's not working with our gods. There's no other hope to save. Maybe your God can save and so they cast lots, and the lot falls on Jonah, and then they ask him, they were like, oh my goodness, what's your occupation? What do you do for a living? What's, what's, why is the lot falling on you? And so in Jonah 1, 8 and 10, it says, what's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you? And he says to them, he says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Notice what happens here. The, the response is, then the men became 
extremely frightened. And they said to him, how could you do this? If you knew that you serve the Lord who made heaven and earth, how could you run from him? How could you lack faith in him? How could you not trust him? And it says, for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. They're like, how could you be such an idiot if you know that he's a creator of everything? Why would you think to try to run from him, to be afraid, to not trust in him? So Jonah tells them a story. He says, throw me out of the boat and God will stop the storm. They don't want to do that. This is remarkable kindness the other sailors have on Jonah. They're like, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to throw you out of the boat. And so they desperately try to row back to the land, but it doesn't work. And, in, and these pagan men, no matter what they tried, they couldn't do it. And so what do they do? They call out to Jonah's God. And Jonah 1.14, he says, this is the sailors praying here. That's, that's remarkable. He says, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish. Same kind of language you hear in Matthew. Don't let us perish on account of this man's life and don't put innocent blood on us for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, they threw him into the sea. The sea stopped raging. The men feared the Lord greatly. Same language in Matthew and in Mark and Luke. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They realized that only the God of creation can calm the storms and that was the God to whom they prayed and looked. That is Jesus to whom the disciples said, Jesus, save us or we perish. But even in doing that, they didn't really know who he was. And yet, he answers their half-knowing prayer. Matthew says the disciples marveled. Mark says they were filled with great fear. The disciples, like the sailors, they realized he's the son of God. But unlike Jonah, he didn't run from God. Jesus took and takes his word, God's word, the good news of salvation to everyone who doesn't deserve it so that all who believe in him might be saved. If you respond to him, you'll be saved. Jesus was faithful where Jonah was faithless. Jesus carried out God's will perfectly where Jonah failed to do that. Where Jonah was experiencing the just punishment for his sin in the storm, Jesus instead takes on our punishment when his disciples actually deserve to experience the storm for the lack of faith. And yet Jesus says, no, I'll calm the storm. He's no ordinary man. He is the true prophet, the one true God. He's not weak and feeble. You know, we have Jesus meek and mild in a lot of children's stories, and I think it does a disservice. He was meek, but he was not weak. He powerfully spoke, and all creation obeys. You know, the disciples were helpless to make it just those few miles, what even five miles maybe across this lake. You think, that's not a big deal, but they were helpless. We're helpless to go a mile in our cars without Jesus upholding us. Do you realize that? Do you know that? Do you rely on him? Do you trust in him? But do you know that he can care for you and he does? I was talking to uh, my wife this week about the attacks in, in Paris when the truck driver mowed down so many people and we're talking about how it, it, it can tempt you to not want to go out of the house if you forget who Jesus is. 
if you don't see that he's over natural things, over people, over storms. But Jesus, the perfect Jonah, carried God's will completely, took God's punishment that we deserved. He bore the storm, not just physically, but metaphorically as well, both. In our place, he took on death. And Jonah was thrown down into the water and he spent three days, the third day, he went belly well, he came up. The parallel for Jesus, Jesus took on death. He overcame death. In his death on the cross, Jesus took the death that we deserve. He died in our place for being faithless, for not obeying him, for not following him, for not believing in him. And, and in our place, he took the death that we deserve and he was raised into life showing that, that his punishment was sufficient for us. He took God's fury, his raging wrath, and he's been raised to new life. And we can be confident that this God-man is now with us, and he says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He understands human weakness. He didn't, he w- he didn't lack understanding the disciples' fear, but he didn't condone it either, because the disciples were looking at themselves, not him. He wasn't limited by their weakness, by, by human weakness. You know, it, this is not some story that says Jesus will calm all the storms of your life. He doesn't. Not always. Good people do die in storms. Even disciples of Jesus Christ, sometimes it is God's will that we physically die. But what we're to see is that he's in control of it all. That he is sovereign over it all and in them we can trust God. You know, with the Apostle Paul, we saw in the book of Acts a few months back that that he actually sent Paul right into a big storm and made Paul be shipwrecked. That was actually God's will. Not that he'd be rescued from the storm, but he goes right into it so that his power might be magnified in Paul being shipwrecked. Sometimes he allows physical calamity to kill faithful disciples. But Matthew is certainly showing us that Jesus is able and is sovereign. And at least indirectly, he's making inference that if he can physically, he's the creator of all, he created us, mind, will, spirit, body, then surely he's not just over the physical world. He's also over everything that comes against us. The big idea that he seems we want to get across is if Jesus can calm the elephants and whatever forces behind them, then we should have faith no matter what we face, no matter what the outcome. Do you have faith today? Are you fearful when you see bad things happening? Look and see who's with you. I love a quote by a guy named Michael Wilkins. He says, it's a challenge for all of us to look clearly at Jesus as the divine human Messiah, to allow him to amaze us and even beyond amazement to move us to follow him as his true disciples. We would do well to humble ourselves and to call on him in our time of need as self-sufficient as we might think we are. Another quote from a guy named Gunther Bornkum. He says, as the need of the disciples on the sea becomes a symbol of the distresses involved in the discipleship of Jesus as a whole, so also in the same connection, he spells it the British way, by the way, I didn't misspell it, the great peace which his word evokes takes on the meaning of the Johannine saying, and what he's referring to is John 16, and we'll close with this. Jesus said, I have said these things to you 
that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. He expects us to work and rest in him, but not to work and rest in ourselves. It's a matter of heart perspective. Jesus, he created the world and he actively sustained the world. And so this miracle confronts us with what do we believe about Jesus? Do we look to him for peace? Do we believe he's sovereign? Do we believe he's trustworthy? Do we believe he's in control? Do we know he's all-powerful and he's overcome the world? If so, we can't be complacent about that. We have to say, okay, what are we going to do with that? Are we going to step out in faith? Are we going to trust in him? Are we going to look to him? Well, let's go out from here. Take heart, find peace in Jesus, and follow Jesus in faith. Amen? Well, let's pray, and then we'll go eat. And what I'll do... um, we're going to take about 15 or, or 20 minutes, maybe max, um, to, for parents to be able to go and pick up their kids and get them from the classes before we can go and get the food and bring it over there. So um, let all the kids be picked up. As soon as all the kids are picked up, um, go and get your food. If you put it in the multipurpose room or the kitchen or wherever you've left it, your car or whatever, and then bring it here um, outside, out front. There's some tents out there. Um, and then 15, 20 minutes from now, we're going to eat. Um, and how things are going to work is um, we're going to line up outside for food and drinks under the tents out there. There's cotton candy. There's snow cones. If the line for the food is long, go get some snow cones so you can cool off first or fill your stomach with cotton candy. You know, uh, nice empty calories are, are good sometimes. And, um, and, then, and then we'll grab uh, lunch together. We'll be eating both in the lobby and the multi-purpose rooms so that we were under air conditioning. It can stay cool. And then after that, you can feel free to go up top and play games, do whatever you want. Um, which is just kind of a, our own potluck. So why don't we pray and then we'll dismiss. Father, thank you that in you we might have peace. Jesus, I pray that you would, you would enable us to look up to you, to look to see that no matter what transpires, you are the creator of all. You have power over all things. You have power over nature. And God, I pray that we look to you and and have peace. God, in the midst of tribulation, Father, I pray that we we would take heart knowing that you, Jesus, have overcome the world. Father, we also ask that you would bless the food and our fellowship time together, keep the kids and all of us safe. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, you may be dismissed. Go pick up your kids.